Well, now we come to that time in the service where we anticipate hearing God's word read and proclaimed in the form of a sermon. And so for this morning, I have chosen Psalm 90. Um, Psalm 90, it's, um, it's an interesting uh, psalm in the sense of it uh, pre- presents us with some reflection on things like the passing of time, the short passing of our lives even, and even exhorts and encourages us towards rise, wise reflection on the fact that our lives are limited in time, the fact that our days are numbered. Those are some of the reasons why I chose that. Um, it's sort of fitting around this time of the year. We're often thinking about um, new beginnings, you know, a new, a new season, at least culturally for us. It is a new season, a new year. Um, sometimes we're reflecting back on what has transpired and looking forward to what is ahead. Um, in some interesting ways, Psalm 90 is positioned as sort of a new beginning as well. Psalm 90 is positioned right after an old ending, the end of book three of the Psalter. Psalm 89 symbolically functions to show um, a, a tragic ending, the failure of David's royal line among God's old covenant people. And in many ways, book four opens up with Psalm 90, Um, presenting a new beginning. What is the way forward after the failure, after the downfall of David's line? What is the way forward for the people of God? Well, the way forward, they go back to Moses in this psalm, Psalm 90. This is the only psalm attributed to Moses, the only psalm in the book of the 150 that is attributed in authorship to Moses. And so um, for many of those reasons, um, you know, it's a lot of different reasons, but I think it's... um, Psalm 90 is, is appropriate. It's, it's a good, good way to think about um, a certain time coming to an end and a new time coming to a new beginning. Um, so with that, um, a short introduction, hopefully, not, hopefully pretty short. Psalm 90, let's go ahead and read God's word together. I will read God's word from Psalm chapter 90. Um, I, I tend to use the English Standard Version, so that's what I'll read from Psalm 90. Um, we read God's word. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. 
Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to it. Let's pray. Let's ask him for that blessing. Father, we thank you that your word comes to us, that it comes to us as your expression of yourself, as your expression of your son. And we thank you that it comes to us of your spirit, and that your spirit even now still uses that word, even as that word comes forth to us today. It's something your, your spirit uses and binds to our hearts and uses to make us into the people you want us to be. And so we ask that you would do just that, O oh Lord. Um, use this word to call us, to grow us, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to grant that we may become uh, people who spread your blessings to others. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. In a lot of ways, one of the great reflections of this psalm is specifically the frailty of God's people, the frailty, the weakness of God's people. Even, you know, there's a lot of reflection on how temporary, how fleeting, how short-lived, how short-lasting are the people of God. Um, You know, this comes out in a few ways in the psalm. In particular, it comes out by way of contrast in verse 1, for example, or verse 2. Verse 2 reflects on God. God is everlasting. God is as everlasting as the mountains. God goes on and on and on. But by way of contrast, we're called to consider the nature of God's people. God's people do not go on and on and on. And in fact, um, Moses gives us in verse 5 and 6 these very pointed images of how short-lived God's people are. Very, very pointed images of how temporary the lives of God's people are. In verse 5, the lives of God's people are compared to something like the things that get swept away by a flood of water. You know, we've all seen those pictures on the news. We've all seen when that water flood rushes in. And you know, in one, one instant, there's a bunch of stuff there. Whatever it is, wherever it happens, there's a bunch of stuff there. And then the next moment later, there's a flood. Where did it all go? That's what God's people are like. That's what Moses compares God's people to in this psalm. He also compares God's people and their lives to a dream. That's the language of verse 5. A dream or even possibly sleep. Sleep or a time of sleep, right? When you're in the middle of a dream, when you're in the middle of sleep, that's your present reality. We all know what that's like. Hopefully, Lord willing, we know what that's like last night. Um, We know what it is like to sleep, and we knew that last night. But when you're in sleep or when you're in that dream, that's the reality until it isn't. You're there in the dream, you're there in the state of sleep, and then one moment, you aren't anymore. And that's the nature of God's people. Temporary, short-lasting. This is what um, Moses is telling us in this psalm. This is what God's word is talking about. And also in verse 6, grass the regular cycle of grass as it goes through the day. It starts out new, fresh in the morning, but just a a short duration of time later, by the end of the day, it is dry and it is withered. Of course, you know, Moses is probably thinking in a very uh, Near Eastern or Middle Eastern kind of context, a very dry desert context, perhaps not too different from where 
we live. And yet, um, we see other reflections on how temporary God's people are. We see verse 12. Um, this, the finiteness of our days is something that calls for wisdom in verse 12. So the request is made in verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This reality of how limited, how finite our lives are, it calls for wise assessment. It calls for a wise manner of dealing with this reality, right? It's something that's not going to change. It's a reality we have to learn to live with and that we have to learn to live in light of. This is what the psalm encourages us to. Also in verse 10, Moses is reflecting on how short-lived God's people are, and he adds to it this other layer. You know, our lives tend to be short. They're, they're just this brief time of flourishing, and then they're over, but at the same time, verse 10 also adds the reality of the misery that often goes with life as God's people. In verse 10, we read, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. So again, the overall uh, picture, I think, is, is clear. Um, you know, Moses, you know, whatever his state of mind was at this moment when he wrote, wrote as a presumed author, whatever his state of mind was, this is what he's, he's meditating on. He's meditating on the fact that God's people do not last very long. They have their short time of flour flourishing that appears essentially in an instant, and after that brief season, it's all over, and it, this calls for wisdom. Certainly, this calls for sobriety. It calls for us to take account of the realities of what it is to live before God. Um, now, something comes up that's maybe a little bit surprising in this psalm. Who is it who is credited with making people's lives short in this psalm? You might find this a little bit surprising, but in the psalm, Moses credits God with being the one who makes his people's lives short. And isn't that interesting? Doesn't that sort of go against um, the grain of our thinking? We, we assume, what's the point of having a God? Isn't the point of having a God that he helps you, that he extends your life, that he makes your life better? And yet in this psalm, whatever Moses' state of mind was, he credits God with being the one who shortens the life of his people. In verse 5, this is what we read. In verse 5, the writer addresses God and says to God, you sweep them away as with a flood. Who is it who causes them to be like they are swept away with the flood? It is God, according to Moses in his writing. Also, um, in verse 3, of Psalm 90, echoes of that, that those words that were spoken early in Genesis um, about men returning to dust, a very vivid image of human mortality, um, echoing back to Genesis 3.19, but here in verse 3, the writer says to God once again, you return man to dust, and it's implied, you say, return, O children of man. Moses adds in verse 15, you you know, addressing God, you have afflicted us, right? It comes in the context. He's asking God to turn around the affliction, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, but we also can't help but notice who is it who has afflicted us? It is God, according to the psalm. Um, the psalm goes one step even deeper and perhaps um, even further and attributes this shortening of the life of God's people to something specific on God's part. And 
Now, this might not be something that's easy to grapple with. It's a topic that may not be easy to grapple with, but it's explained in this way. It's described as God's wrath, God's anger. Some translations substitute God's indignation over sin. God's response to sin, which amounts to wrath or anger, at least in the way it's described, right? That's, that's challenging to deal with, and we could admit that. But at the same time, for sure, what is expressed here? The Lord responds to human sin with emotional displeasure, intense emotional displeasure, right? That is what's expressed, if, not, not, if nothing else, and the responses to this you know, the consequences of human sin and the response they elicit on the part of God, they bring about negative consequences, what we could describe as punishments. And I think that's part of what Moses is um, focused on, you know, the author of this psalm. Notice verses 7 through 9, and notice how this is, in many ways, this is a real central chunk of the psalm. This is where Moses' head is at, I think, where his heart is at. For we are brought to an end by your anger, he says to God. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. And again, also in verse 11, there's more reference to God. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you. You know, the interesting thing, you know, I, I did mention at the beginning of the sermon before um, we read the scripture, I mentioned, you know, the interesting historical circumstance of probably the selection and arrangement of the book of Psalms, right? At the end of book three, just before Psalm 90, book three was symbolic of the failure of the line of David. God had promised kingship through David's line. This was to be the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham to bring blessing to the world. The king in the line of David was God's chosen instrument of blessing by which his blessings were mediated to the entire world. And so, therefore, the failure of that line of kings felt like a massive step backwards, a major disappointment for anyone who was hoping for the blessings of the God of Israel to come to the entire world, the downfall of David's line was a major disappointment. And I think you can, you can read that disappointment in Psalm 89 if you, if you read it on your own time. You can sense that there's mourning over that reality. And yet this was what Psalm 89 in its placement is symbolic of. Where do the people of God go next? If the kingship has been revoked, if the kingship has failed, where do God's people go next? Well, this is where Psalm 90 presents them with a new beginning. They go the way of Moses. They look back to someone more foundational than David, right? The Lord brought progress of redemption and revelation through David, but more foundational was what he brought through Moses. They go back to the foundation. They go back to Moses. And they look at how Moses dealt with exact, this exact same problem. Why did the line of David's, kings, uh, of David's sons fail to hold on to the kingship? It was owing to sin. 
And Psalm 89, 46 describes this. It even echoes that same language of God's wrath. Psalm 89, 46. As you read through the account of 2 Kings, you see again and again the, the sons of David's lines. They're described as doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the problem was sin. Sin was what brought the royal line of David to an end and to a point of failure. But how do you deal with that? Well, I think Psalm 90 shows the way. The people of God, they can go back to how Moses dealt with it. Moses had to deal with this problem, didn't he? The people of God struggling with sin. The people of God bringing consequences on themselves on account of their sin. You know, notice, you know, verse 8, Moses is conscious of, conscious of iniquities, secret sins in the light of God's presence and how these sins have adversely affected the fortunes of God's people. Setbacks happened to the people of God. Didn't Moses live through many of those setbacks? You know, read through the books of Exodus, Numbers. See how the sin of God's people was time and again something that, that held them back, something that was a setback that prevented them from making progress and the advancement of God's plan and the advancement of God's kingdom. And, you know, I mean, I think, I think it's a live question that we all, to some extent, even question, deal with, right? We see setbacks, and we know about our own sins. We even know about those secret sins that Moses talks about here. We, we all know that we have secret sins invisible to the eyes of others. But at the same time, we deal with setbacks, and we wonder, is the Lord angry with me? Is this why things are being held back? Is this why I'm facing these setbacks? Is it because of my sins? So, you know, sometimes it's just a question, right? In the case of the Bible, the Old Testament makes clear that, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, Israel failed because of their sin. David's line failed because of their sin. For us, we may not have that clear of a sense all the time, but at least isn't it a question that we wonder about? And then especially as we deal with the frailty that is described in this psalm, Right? We, describe with, we deal with lives that are often toil and trouble. We deal with misery in our lives. And we wonder, is God punishing me for my sins? Is that why I'm experiencing this? Experiencing this? Or is God holding back his mission in my life? Is God holding back his mission in the life of my church because of my sin? Right? Aren't these legitimate questions that we deal with? So how do we deal with that question, though? I mean, that, that's the question. How does Moses deal with it? Right? I think one way we tend to deal with it is we think about how we can go about changing our ways. Right? If our sin brings upon us bad consequences and makes us feel like God is punishing us, we go about changing our ways, right? And that's not a bad response, right? If we're aware that God is not happy with our sins, then isn't it a good idea to change our ways? Isn't that a good response to that sense of God's displeasure over our sins? And again, that's not a bad response, but it's also not the only response that we can have. I mean, it's a good response. It's also not the only response, and it's also not the response that Moses points us to in this psalm. How do we deal with that reality, feeling our sins, feeling feeling that perhaps God is angry with us. How do we deal with that? How does Moses deal with it? How does Moses show God's people 
is the way to deal with it? Well, he shows us in verse 1. Where do we go with that sense of God's wrath when we feel it against us? Where do we go with it? Maybe it's a bit surprising, but the place that we go with it, the place we should go with it, is God himself. And that's what the psalm says. That's what Psalm 90 says. Notice, as an anchor to the entire psalm, verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Dwelling place. It's language of refuge, language of safety, language of protection from danger or harm. Lord, you are our dwelling place, and you have been this for us generation after generation. And Moses knows this. Again, Moses had to deal with the sin of his people. The sin of Israel was a constant thing that kept uh, bringing setbacks to the, to the, to the na- nation of Israel um, in the Old Testament. And Moses had to, had to intercede with the Lord, right? Um, things happened that could rightly be described as even the wrath of God, I think, in the Old Testament. And yet, what did Moses do with that sense of the wrath of God? He took it to the Lord. He found safety in the Lord. And I think this is what Moses is expressing. So again, um, where do God's people go when they feel that sense of their sin, their iniquity, and they're afraid of God? Well, maybe it's a little counterintuitive. You go to God himself. God is the one who provides you the refuge, even from his own wrath, right? That's, you know, that's counterintuitive, right? That's not what we expect. That's not how Adam and Eve dealt with their sin. Adam and Eve, they ran away from God. They hid from God. Moses um, um, shows us you go to God. And this is what this psalm is about, right? When you're dealing with that reality, sensing the wrath of God, sensing the anger of God over your sins, sensing that he's displeased with you over your sins, where do you go? You go to the Lord. He is the dwelling place. He is the refuge. And so again, I think... Um, That's what this psalm is about, showing us. The Lord is a safe place. The Lord is a safe space. That's what the language implies. He's the safe space to go to deal with, with, um, for him to deal with your sins. And of course, um, all that is uh, ultimately foreshadowing his ultimate plan. What's the ultimate way that he dealt with our sins? It was out of resources that were from within himself. It was by means of his own son, Right? He didn't leave it on us to deal with our sins before coming to him. He brought us to himself by dealing with our sins in the person of his son and in the work of his, sons, his son, particularly in his death on the cross. And so I think that's also what this psalm is about. So again, the reality of, the reality of sin, the reality of frailty, the reality of when we feel these things as wrath, when we sense them as if this is God's anger, and yet at the same time, where to go with that? The Lord is the dwelling place. The Lord is the dwelling place. And as we have confidence that the Lord takes care of our our sin, then we can also have the confidence to ask him to turn things around once again. And this is what the psalmist does in verses 12 through 13. You know, based on the assurance that the Lord is is his dwelling place, He asks, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. 
Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Lord, since you are the one who deals with our sins, we can trust in you that you can turn things around even beyond what our sins deserve. And so we do indeed find refuge in you, O Lord, and this is what we are called to. Um, again, I think um, this, this psalm raises the question for us how we view the Lord. Do we view him as someone to hide from with our sins, or do we view him as the one to come to with our sins? And he invites us, and he shows himself to be the one who receives us to himself, even with our sins. Now, he receives us with our sins in order to deal with them, in order to turn them around for us even, and to help us turn them around. That's part of it. But at the same time, he's the one who receives us. And so this is how we need to think of him. We need to consider um, who we are and what he's done for us and who he is towards us as his people. And therefore, um, carry on in the kinds of things described in this psalm. Therefore, learn to number our days. Learn to walk with a heart of wisdom. May this be um, what is true of us. May these things be true of us by his Holy Spirit working these things in us, and may we continue to walk and trust in him in his ways. Well, let me uh, close us in prayer at this time, and let's close this time in God's word in a time of prayer. Father, we do come to you um, thankful that you are our dwelling place. You are the safe place. You are the place of refuge. Um, And even when it comes up that, um, you know, we're aware of our sins, and we know that you're aware of our sins, and we feel that you're angry with us, or we feel what's described here as your wrath, that we know that we have you to come to with that, and even that you welcome us, and that you have, um, you have come down. You have done the work to come to us. You have come to us in the person of your son, in the grace of your son. He has come to us to welcome us into your presence, to show us your compassion, to show us your love, to show us your grace, you know, um, the, the reality of, you know, the reality of, of your wrath, oh God, it is, it is something. It is something described here in the scriptures, and it, it means something. And it is something um, fearful, and we confess that. But we thank you that the answer is to come to you. Thank you that you bring us to yourself. Thank you that you welcome us to yourself in the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we ask you, Lord, um, please um, seal our hearts so that we belong to you and so that our lives reflect you better and better. Please work in us by our Holy Spirit and continue to to work out your purposes. Please turn things around for your people. Turn things around for your servants. Have pity on us, O Lord, how long? Lead us to that final outcome, the final reality of the fullness of your kingdom. This is what you have promised. This is what you have sealed in the blood of your own son. And so we anticipate and we look forward in faith and we walk by faith, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.